0: Welcome to the John Brown University Chapel podcast, recorded in the historic Cathedral of the Ozarks in Salem Springs, Arkansas. This week was Spiritual Emphasis Week at John Brown University, and our speaker was Dr. Chris Green, Professor of Public Theology at Southeastern University in Lakeland, Florida. Dr. Green is also the Director of the St. Anthony Institute for Theology, Philosophy, and Liturgics. He and his wife, Julie, both serve on staff at Sanctuary Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, where Chris serves as teaching pastor. It is my honor to introduce one last time our guest speaker for Spiritual Emphasis Week, Dr. Chris Green. I don't know about you, but this week has felt like a feast. We haven't just been here hearing about the Word of God, but we've been fed. And Dr. Green is doing a wonderful job reawakening perhaps some of us. Uh, to the beauty of scripture and the treasures of scripture and guiding us masterfully through some obstacles to get us there Uh, at the end of this uh uh, service i'll come up and give a blessing but this is officially the end of spiritual emphasis week so i hope that you guys take one last moment here I invite you here in the cathedral and those of you who are over at bpac invite you one last time to open your minds and hearts uh, for the word of god that is coming through dr green so join me in Welcome back. I I didn't sleep terribly well last night. I am stirred about my time here with you. And as I said, this is my first time at JBU and first time meeting most of the most of the people I've met. And after last night we had some talk a talk back time with some students and I went back to the to the room and I couldn't sleep thinking about what I think it is that God is doing here in, in the community that is John Brown. I mean, one, one of the things I'm convinced of is, and I I mean, not far from the only one that we're in the midst of a kind of cultural sea change that the world as we have known, it is shifting dramatically. It's changing even in the course of your own lifetimes, much less mine, much less my parents and my grandparents. The world is changing dramatically. And as the world changes, the church's mission shifts with it. And I believe that universities, including John Brown, universities have a unique and strategic place in the shape of that mission. That God has planted this university here. God has gathered these people here, faculty, staff, administration, and you, of course, has gathered you here for work that's about more than what it seems like you're doing day to day. So the work you're doing day to day matters. The classes you're attending, the chapels you're attending, maybe not this one so much, but in general, they matter. What you're doing matters, but you're also contributing in ways that no one can calculate to what God is doing in this moment in the world. And universities, again, have that unique strategic place. I was talking with Dr. Beers, Dr. Steve Beers, about this very point. I think as a university, you should lean into the vocation of a university, that in the university, you are positioned by the nature of what a university is to be listeners, to learn how to give attention, to be patient, to curate conversations, to think carefully. And whether you realize this or not, Most of the places in our culture, including many of our churches, do not feel that they can do that, that they can take time, that they can be patient in conversation, that they can listen. So many places, and you know this, I know you do, you can feel it too. So many places, including our local churches, are under the pressure of the culture wars, under pressure. To be for this and against that. To stand for this politician and against that one. Like there's enormous pressures on pastors. I am a pastor. I work in a local church. I know what that feels like. And I know you know what it feels like. A university God has shaped as a space where some of that pressure is cleared away. And you get to go to class and raise questions and have a conversation that you can't have in your local church. You can't have at the, at the school or at the restaurant. Like, this is a sacred space to nurture depth, to nurture patience and wisdom and care, to, to learn how to be what Jesus says, that you should be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. That's what you're learning here. So let me encourage you, students. Lean into that experience. Like, draw as much sweetness as much life from this experience as you can and let me encourage you faculty administration staff lean into that calling and recognize that god is at work in a unique way in universities and in a unique way in this university not only for these students the people that are gathered in this room and these rooms but beyond that in ways we can't anticipate so i wanted to say that that first i have Far too much to say in my last 23 minutes with you. That's so um, heavy to say. We'll just act as if at some point in the future, I'll be back. So I'll say more of it then. But for now, I've I've got about 22 minutes to say a lot of things. I'm going to try to compress them as best I can. They may not be entirely coherent, but you can piece it together later. The first thing I want to do is tell you a story. It's one of my favorite stories. It's a story one of my favorite preachers told me. So in this story, there's a kid, a young man, who is an atheist, and he is a militant evangelistic atheist. He feels it's his job to be the Billy Graham of unbelief. He is going to convince as many people as he can not to be Christians. And he's pretty good at it. He's pretty successful all the way through high school into college and beyond, into graduate school. He's just converting people away from the faith left and right. And he's pretty proud of himself because of it. He feels this sense of burden to change the world by making it less Christian because of how dangerous Christians are. So one of his devotions is every Sunday morning at 10 o'clock at the time for church, he goes into the mountains to take a walk to meditate and talk to himself about new ways of evangelizing people away from the faith. So one Sunday morning, he's in the mountains, and he's taking a walk. And because he's so used to doing this, he's not really paying attention anymore, and he trips and falls and realizes that he's tripped over an exposed tree root, and his foot is now wedged, and he can't stand up. So he's working with it, trying to get himself loose, cursing to himself a little bit under his breath. And he hears a crash in the woods. He's not too worried at first. He assumes it's not a big deal. Maybe a deer startled because of his cursing. Uh, You know, a very evangelical deer that's offended by that kind of language. But then he hears a sound that, He's afraid, he recognizes, and he looks, and sure enough, there in the clearing just across from him is an enormous bear. This is not a true story, by the way, but it's, it's true. You'll see what I mean. So he's lying there, his foot's wedged under this tree root, and there's a bear. And now he's, he's really panicking. And here comes the bear slowly sniffing towards him, And he's starting to panic, and now he's really desperately trying to get his foot free. And then the bear is standing over him, and he sees the bear recognize what this moment is. He sees the mouth come open. He sees the claws come up, and he says, dear God. And at that moment, time freezes. And God says, "Mm mm-hmm. And he says, God, I know I've worked against you all of my life. I know I've said I don't believe in you, and I've converted so many people away from you. I know I've done so much to fight you, but I really need you right now. And God says, okay, I'm listening. I'm listening. And the man said, if you'll just get me through this, if you'll just somehow get me through this, I'll make all of that right. I'll become an evangelist for you instead of against you. And God says, okay, so what do you want me to do for you right now? If you're going to do that for me, what do you want me to do for you? And he says, oh God, if you could just make this bear a Christian right now, just make it a Christian. And God says, done. And time snaps back into its flow and the bear says, father, we thank you for this food we are about to receive. The reason why that's one of my favorite stories is that it, it catches you off guard, but it points to the fact that there's a way of being Christian that doesn't really change you much. It just turns you into a polite beast, into someone who, while you're devouring the lives of other people, you, turn, you know how to be nice about it. And a little bit of Christianity is worse than no Christianity at all. And part of what I've been trying to nudge you toward over these last three days is that that realization, that a little bit of knowledge of the Bible is worse than no knowledge at all. That a little bit of knowledge of God is worse than no knowledge at all, because it inoculates you against the reality of God. So superficial readings of Scripture, readings of Scripture that are cliched, they're more harm than good. You'll be the bear eating people up and thanking God for it while you do. What we need are deep readings, deep conversions, deep prayer, deep conversation, deep communion with God so that we can be changed from the depths of our souls that, so that I don't have a kind of form of Christianity but not live in the power of it, so that I don't sound nice. And by the way, let me just say this. One of the ways you can tell the difference is to make the distinction between niceness and kindness. Right. Flannery O'Connor, I don't know if any of you read Flannery O'Connor, but you should if you don't. Flannery O'Connor is, is perfect at talking about how in the American South there is a culture of niceness, so called Southern hospitality, that is what Stanley Hauerwas calls a calculated form of cruelty, where we are killing you, but we're doing it so subtly you don't know that we're killing you. It's bless their hearts which is incredibly, incredibly insulting and condescending, but it's nice. But here's the thing. Niceness is not a fruit of the Spirit. Jesus was kind, but he was not nice. And learning the difference between kindness and niceness is the learning the difference between a superficial Christianity that does more harm than good and a deep share in the life of Christ that makes you a life-giving person. And that, for me, comes back to reading Scripture in ways that are life-giving. And so, in the little bit of time I have with you, I want to share with you two passages of Scripture. The first one is Matthew 5. And this is not exactly advice, but this is what I would recommend for, to, to you. Fall in love with Scripture. Fall in love with Jesus. And stay close to people who are obviously in love with Jesus and in love with Scripture. If that's advice, that's what I give you. Fall in love with Scripture, fall in love with Jesus, and stay close to people who are obviously in love with Scripture and in love with Jesus. Now, I'm saying both of those things together because there are some people who are biblical because of the power that the knowledge of the Bible gives them, but they're not in love with Jesus. And that's dangerous. And there are some people who seem to be in love with Jesus, but because they're not rooted in Scripture... They're, they're not able to show you the wisdom of God. And, and you have to wonder what Jesus they're in love with if it's not the Jesus that Scripture is testifying to. So find people in your life, and you'll, there are many of them, I'm sure, on this campus, at least a few of them somewhere, who are in love with Scripture and in love with Jesus and stay close to them. And aim to become that kind of person yourself. And it, it doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen easily, but you just got to be around it, right? So I'm sure the question you're asking is, well, how do I do that? Like, how do I fall in love with Jesus? How do I fall in love with scripture? So Hugh of St. Victor, who's one of my, my favorite saints, if you can have favorite saints, I, I don't have like a trading card for him or anything, but he, he has this wonderful passage where he's talking about the love of God. And he says, we need to fall in love with God because loving God is our life. But how do we do that? And he's like, Well, how do you fall in love with anybody? Keep going around them, keep spending time with them, keep showing up at their house, talk to their friends about them, and eventually you're infected. You're, you fall in love, you become love sick. I mean, this is what Song of Songs is about about being love sick for God head over heels for Jesus. But to do that, if if you're not already, the way to do that is just keep showing up where he is. Keep talking to people who are in love with him and you'll get infected. And the same thing applies to scripture. If you're not right now in love with scripture, keep reading it and read past that initial boredom. Read past that initial sense of, I have no idea what this means or, yeah, this is obvious, into the surprise of, wait a minute, This is not what I expected. There there is more happening here than I could have anticipated. And when you're in love with Jesus and you're in love with scripture, you will be a life-giving person. You will be a person, as we were talking about, unlike Noah, in that you will be a person who's not just about sacrifice, you're about mercy. And that's what brings life to the people around you. All right, so Matthew 5. This is the Sermon on the Mount, and it is... One way of thinking about this is this is the heart of Jesus teaching to us. This is his manifesto, in a sense. This is what he wants us to get. And he begins, as you know, with the so-called Beatitudes. Let me read them and then make a comment about them, and we'll go from there. The poor in spirit are blessed, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Those who mourn are blessed, for they will be comforted. The gentle are blessed for they will inherit the earth. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed, for they will be filled. The merciful are blessed, for they will be shown mercy. The pure in heart are blessed, for they will see God. The peacemakers are blessed, for they will be called sons of God. Those who are persecuted for righteousness are blessed, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed. When they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me, be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So this, this sketch, and we're going to keep reading, but this opening paragraph of Jesus' teaching is about how to become prophetic. We throw that term around far too much being prophetic, but this is a description of what it looks like to be prophetic. You know you're a prophet when they persecute you because of the intercession you offer for the weak and the poor and the broken. But in order to become a prophet, your life has to pass through these stages. You have to be poor in spirit. Out of that poverty of spirit has to come mourning. For those who haven't read this, there's a book called Poverty of Spirit that is absolutely essential reading, I think, devotionally. It's one of those... For me, one of those books, along with Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Life Together, stuff by Eugene Peterson and others, that is essential, that I come back to over and over again. And part of what is argued in in that book is that the Christian life always begins, it really begins, in poverty of spirit. And that means two things. One is the recognition that you're not your own source. You cannot give yourself what you most need. You didn't make yourself come into being like you didn't make the conditions of your life, you are someone else's creation. You're not your own creation. And poverty of spirit is first of all about the recognition that you are the creature of the spirit. You are God's creation. You are God's poem. He's writing you. He's creating you. And you have to recognize that. The other thing about poverty of spirit is that because you recognize that you're not your own source, you recognize that you don't have to enforce yourself on anyone else. And you've got to hear this, especially at this point in your life. You didn't create yourself, and you don't have to make other people see your worth. You're not in the position, you don't need to be in the position of enforcing yourself on anyone in a relationship for a job, for ministry. God is your source, and God is the one who will bring you into the place where you belong. That's poverty of spirit. That's where it begins. But out of poverty of spirit flows mourning and gentleness or meekness. Out of that flows hunger and thirst for righteousness. Out of that flows mercy, purity of heart, peacemaking. And notice That peacemaking leads to persecution. Remember yesterday I was talking to you about Jesus and the Pharisees and the ways in which the Pharisees try to play the angles. They try to turn Jesus against the disciples and the disciples against Jesus. Because the work of evil in the world is always to separate what God wants to integrate. But the work of the Spirit is to integrate in ways that are healthy, in ways that are whole. Not confusion, not mixture, but integration in which we are brought into friendship, brought into community, but not in a way that violates who we are as persons. And so what we are meant for is to be peacemakers, people who bring about integration, bring about peace. But the, the forces of evil in the world hate peacemakers. That's why Jesus ends up dead between two thieves Because the forces of evil hate people who make peace. But you will only be someone who can make peace if your life is rooted in poverty of spirit and if you know what it is to mourn, not over what happens to you, but what happens to other people until mercy flows out of you and purifies your heart. One of the teachings that I think I I come back to again and again is this idea that it's out of mourning that you cry and it is the tears of intercession for others that create mercy, and mercy purifies your heart. If you want to have a pure heart for God, learn to be broken for what is happening to the people around you. Again, unlike Noah. So this is the pattern of the life Jesus calls us to. Then he says, if you're like that, if you're a prophetic people shaped in those ways, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. And then in verse 17, don't assume that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For I assure you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter of one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. So he's saying, I've come to fulfill scripture and nothing about scripture, not one jot or tittle, as the King James says, not one letter, not one mark, will fall away until I've fulfilled it all. But then in verse 21, he says, you have heard it said, do not murder, but I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery, verse 27, but I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust after her has already committed adultery in his heart. You have heard it said, but I tell you. Now, I want you to notice really quickly That Jesus has given you the pattern of the kind of life you're expected to live. That he lived and that he wants you to live. A prophetic life rooted in poverty and spirit and embodying peacemaking. That life is rooted, he says, in what he does with scripture. He fulfills scripture. Not one letter, not one mark will pass away. But the only way in which scripture itself can be fulfilled is if you can realize what you've been told about scripture does need to change. And this is maybe the most important thing I've said to you the whole week. You have to understand there's a difference between what God is saying and what people are saying to you about what God is saying. Jesus is not saying, you've heard what the scriptures say and I disagree with the scriptures. He's not correcting the scriptures. He's fulfilling the scriptures. But he is telling them, you've heard that the scriptures say this and I'm telling you, that's not what the scriptures say. Now, this is not some call to turn away from the church, just the opposite. This is not a a way of saying, don't trust people, just the opposite. It's a way of saying, be discerning about what you're being told. Some of you, if not now, in the future, are going to be tempted to walk away from the faith. You're going to be tempted to reject Scripture, to reject Jesus, when what you're really rejecting is a perversion of the truth. What you're really rejecting are abusive forms of the faith. What you're really rejecting are the people who are misrepresenting God to you. And that should be rejected. But clinging to him as he is is what sets you free from all of those illusions, That's what has to happen. All right, one more thing, and then I'm done. I've got five minutes. Matthew, I mean, Psalm 23. So that same pattern of life that we see in the Sermon on the Mount, a pattern of life that confirms Scripture in its fullness, even though it challenges what some people have said Scripture says, that's what you're going to see in Psalm 23, and I'm going to leave you with that for the week. Let me, before I read that, though, let me just reiterate this point. Please be open. When you notice, when you feel, when you recognize the trouble you're having with something that's happening in the church or the way that Christians are talking or the way that pastors are acting or whatever it may be, when you're put off by what Christians are doing, run to Jesus with that. Run to those people that I talked about before, the people who obviously love Jesus with that. Don't let it push you away. Like one of the things that's happening in this sea change that I talked about is we're entering into, well, we're already in a post-Christian culture. And more and more and more people are walking away from the faith. Or at least what they think is the faith. But one of the things I see as a pastor and as a professor all the time, there's not a weak hardly a day that goes by that I don't have a conversation about this kind of thing with people who think that they can't read scripture or think that they can't pray or think that they can't love God when what's really happening is they've been wounded by people who've misrepresented God. And the only way to get out of that is to help them see Jesus as he is, to hear him saying, you've heard it said, but I say, this is something else. You know, on the day of Pentecost, Peter stands up and says, these people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. Notice he doesn't say they're not drunk because we don't do that. He says, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. You shouldn't do that. But that's not what Peter says. You should have laughed more. That was a joke. I'm not giving you permission to do anything. So Peter is saying, this is, this is not what you think it is. That's the work of the prophetic life, is to say to people, what you think is happening is not happening. But in order to be a prophetic person, you have to live that Sermon on the Mount. You have to let. You have to own your poverty of spirit. You have to learn to mourn. You have to have your heart purified through intercession. You have to become a peacemaker. And so, that's what Psalm 23 describes for us. I know this is jumbled, but I'm trying to say too much in too little little time. The Lord is my shepherd. There's nothing I lack. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even when I go through the darkest valley, or the valley of the shadow of death is the more famous translation, I fear no danger, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and faithful love will pursue me or follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. Now, everybody knows this psalm. At least we know the King James version of it. But I I just want to show you that there is a progression in Psalm 23. And it's the exact same progression that we see in the Beatitudes, the exact same movement. I don't have time to talk about it in depth, but let me just show you. There are three movements. First of all, he starts by saying, the Lord is my shepherd. He's talking about God in the third person. He has beliefs about God. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me beside still waters. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. All of that's well and good. But where does he end up? Or where does she end up? In the valley of the shadow of death. So all of the first part of this psalm, talking about God in the third person, it can be heard as saying, well, I'll never end up in trouble because the Lord is my shepherd. But guess what? You still end up in the valley of the shadow of death. And something happens in the valley of the shadow of death that has to happen to all of you. And for many of you, university is the valley of the shadow of death. This chapel may be the darkest part of that valley. But here's here's the point. What happens in the valley of the shadow of death is that the psalmist shifts from the third person to the second. He's not talking about God. He's talking to God. You are with me. And everything, literally, everything depends on that turn happening in your life. Not learning to say the right things about God, but learning to talk to God when you're in the midst of darkness. And here's the thing, getting it right isn't the point. People who want to police how you talk about God don't know how to help you when you're in the darkness. When you're in the darkness, what matters is that you just keep talking to him. Not that you get it right, but that you stay in his face. And if you don't hear anything else I say this week, hear this. When you're in the darkness, turn to him. If you can't see him, turn to him and stay turned to him and say whatever you want to say. He can take it. You are with me. And even if what you have to say is, "I don't feel it, you're not very good at this God, you really should try to up your game. Keep telling him that you're, you want to be with it. You want to be with him." And what comes of that, Dr. Jagger, come on, get me off the stage. What comes of that? At the end of this psalm is, is the psalmist saying, "Surely goodness and mercy will follow me." And that last turn happens, so the first turn happens in the darkness. The second turn happens when you have a table in the presence of your enemies. Now, here's the question. Why would God put up a table in the presence of your enemies? Here's why. Because he means for you to serve them. He means for you to get up from that table, invite them over, set them down, and do for them what he's done for you. And when you do that, Goodness and mercy will follow you everywhere you go. And you will be someone who's not talking about God in the third person. You're not only talking to God in the second person, but now you're living like God in the first person. And that is what you're called to. Live it. I'm out of the way. Thanks for listening to this episode of the John Brown University Chapel Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening on, and we'd love it if you would leave us a review.